Section 62 of The World War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Dove. The World's Story, Volume 15, The World War, edited by Horatio W. Dresser, Section 62, The Emden, 1914, by Lewis R. Freeman. On the 9th of November, 1914, the Australian cruiser Sydney, en route to Colombo in the Indian Ocean, picked up from the Cocos Island station a wireless concerning a strange warship. Presently, a landing party from that ship destroyed the station from which the message was sent. But the word had gone forth. The Sydney came at full speed and immediately opened fire on this strange craft, which proved to be the long-sought and elusive raider Emden, chargeable with more damage done to merchant shipping than any other enemy warship had wrought. The Emden fought hard. The Sydney's foremast rangefinder was shot to pieces, the after-control platform was wrecked, and a cordite fire started. But fortunately the Sydney, a knot and a half faster than the Emden, could attain the speed of 26 knots an hour, and so keep her own distance, choose her own range. Racing at full speed, the Sydney delivered broadside after broadside, during a battle lasting an hour and 40 minutes, covering a distance of 56 miles. The Emden, riddled with shot, finally rushed ashore on North Keeling, a flaming wreck. Some of the crew escaped and wandered far over the world in their effort to return to Germany. Muck, one of the officers, zigzagged over thousands of miles of land and sea, braving storm and blockade, desert tribes and fever, en route for home. The Editor The official account of the stirring and picturesque adventures of the Emden is hardly likely to be given to the world until the gates of Captain Muller's comfortable English prison swing open for him at the end of the war. But in the interviews, a lecture or two, and a booklet by Lieutenant Mook, all the salient features have been covered, and it is from translations of these that we will endeavor to follow the fortunes of the doughty young Teuton, whose courage, resource, and devotion to duty have won scarcely less admiration in the countries of his enemies than in the fatherland. Within a day or two after the outbreak of the war, the Emden, in pursuance of the commerce-destroying plan which the German Admiralty had worked out to its least details many years before, slipped away from Tsingtao and headed for the South Pacific to join the Scharnhorst, Niesenau, and Nuremberg. It was a later order which turned her off to the Indian Ocean to find both her glory and her grave. The first ship sunk, on September 11th, was the Lovett, a British transport, which had promptly hoisted the Union Jack under the impression that the Emden was an English boat. The silly face of its captain, which he made after we had hoisted our flag and ordered him to stay with us, I would regret not to have seen, observes Mook, and adds that, for the numerous stables for horses on this boat, we had no appreciation, and a half hour later we had submitted the question to the sharks. Business was brisk for the Emden during the next few days, and there was one occasion on which she had five or six steamers, Mook has forgotten the exact number, hove to and ready to sink at one place. This happened so, writes Mook. A steamer came along and was stopped. Ten men and an officer went over to it. These got the ship ready to sink and saw that the passengers were all removed. While we were still occupied with this boat, appeared the top of another mast on the horizon. We did not need to hurry at all. The ships seemed to come by themselves to us. When one came near enough, the Emden made it a friendly signal, which tempted it to join the other boats, and by the time this one was prepared for sinking, another mast top would appear. At the end of ten days, practically every steamer in the northern Indian Ocean was either at the bottom of the sea or held in port by its apprehensive owners, so, in lieu of other game, the audacious Emden took a tilt at the oil tanks of Madras. 
Sure in his knowledge of the antique guns which defended the historic Indian port, Muller steamed in, with all lights out, to within 3,000 meters of the shore. The harbor light burned peacefully, writes Mook, and made navigation easy. Our targets, the red and white striped oil tanks, could be plainly discerned. A few shells, a quick flash of blue-yellow flame, and the tanks were vomiting red jets from the shot holes. Then a great black cloud of smoke arose, and, according to the proverb, variety is the spice of life, we had this time sent a few millions up into the air instead of down into the depths. From Madras, a few shots were discharged at us, but without any aim, and the fire of the burning oil tanks lighted us for ninety miles on our way. The Tywerik, sunk but two hours after it had left Colombo, gave the Emden late news of the world through the evening papers of the Singhalese capital. The German cruiser appeared to be the principal topic of local news, and her officers learned, among other things, that their ship had been sunk at two widely separated points and was being hotly pursued at another. Ten or a dozen more steamers were sunk by the Emden during the next three weeks, and then she slipped away from the sea lanes that she had terrorized to rest and refit. This took her to Diego Garcia, an isolated rock in the South Ocean where two or three lonely Britons were holding an almost uncharted outpost of empire by running a plantation. Here occurred a most delicious little episode. As we dropped anchor, writes Mook, there came an Englishman, his arms loaded with presents for us, and his eyes wet with tears of welcome. He had not yet heard of the war, as the island received its mail only once every half year by schooner. He asked us to fix his motorboat, which was out of commission. This we did gladly. Then, without telling him anything of the terrible condition the world was in at present, we bade him good-bye and sailed away. His mail was due in fourteen days, and then perhaps he may have learned to whom he brought his presents. Shipping was spread thin along the trade routes when the Emden returned again to the attack, and two or three steamers sunk in the vicinity of Minico were the sum of her bag for a week's cruising. This monotonous life began to pall upon the men of the raider, and, as Mook naively put it, they felt the stirring of desire to make the acquaintance of real warships. We knew through the papers, he writes, that sixteen English, French, and Japanese men of war were using up their coal in a vain search for us, and, obligingly, we decided to visit them in their own harbor. The Penang raid was the crowning achievement of the Emden's career, and, as it proved, the final one. It was a fitting swan song. Penang, a British crown colony like Singapore, Hong Kong, and one or two other ports of the Far East, is located on a small island with its harbor formed by the narrow strait which separates the island from the mainland. For a mile or two, this strait is no wider than the Hudson at Grant's tomb, and at its narrowest place, crowning a little point which reaches out toward the palm-fringed foreshore of the Malay Peninsula, is a picturesque old stone fort which dates back to the days when the Portuguese held the Spice Islands and fought the British and the Dutch for the mastery of the Orient. Old bronze guns peeped from its crumbling ports and did brave service as hobby horses when the ayahs from the officers' quarters brought out the babies for their afternoon promenade. If any modern guns had been mounted about the harbor, it may be taken for granted that the Emden was fully informed both as to their power and location. The raider's only chance of a successful raid upon a harbor in which it was more than likely to encounter superior force was to creep in unobserved, strike suddenly, and withdraw in the confusion of the surprise. By this time, the profile of the Emden was up in the chart room of every warship and merchantman plying the eastern seas. The resourceful Teutons, knowing this, hit upon the expedient of altering that profile. A fourth smokestack of painted canvas had been ready for weeks against just such an emergency 
and when set up in line with the three real ones, made the raider appear, in anything but the broad light of day, an almost exact counterpart of a well-known type of British armored cruiser, which was being extensively employed in the pursuit of the Emden. With all lights out, the disguised German warship crept in toward the narrow strait which forms the harbor of Penang. The arrival was timed to the minute to meet the first four running streaks of dawn. Complete darkness would have made it impossible to navigate in the restricted seaway, while daylight would have meant discovery. The half-light of the breaking day suited the raider's purpose to a nicety. At first only fisher boats were seen, then a mass of merchant shipping unfolded, and finally, looming darkly at only a couple of hundred meters distance, the silhouette of the Russian cruiser Shemchuk took shape against the brightening east. On board the Russian, everybody was busy sleeping, observed Zmuk. We fired a torpedo at its stern. It was lifted by the detonation half a meter and then began to sink slowly. Following the torpedo, we directed a hail of fire at the foredeck where the crew was sleeping. Soon this part of the ship looked like a sieve, and we could see through the holes the fires that were raging inside. Meanwhile, we sailed by the sinking ship and turned ready to run. Now we were being shot at from three sides, from the Shemchuk and from two other directions which we could not exactly determine. We heard the whistling of the shells and saw the spots where they plunged into the water. A second torpedo finished the Russian cruiser, and the Emden turned to meet its new foes. Now the French destroyer, D'Iberville, was descried. Now a cruiser was reported coming in, and now a torpedo boat. The supposed cruiser turned out to be a merchantman, but the torpedo boat, the French Mosquette, was a real menace in the narrow channel. Disdaining the obsolete D'Iberville, the Emden steamed to meet the oncoming Mosquette, which was disposed of in three broadsides. Picking up 33 survivors from the water, the unscathed raider slipped out of the harbor and made for the open sea from which it had come but a short half-hour before. The night mists were lifting now, but there was left afloat in Penang no ship swift enough to pursue the audacious marauder. Twelve days later, on the 9th of November, the Emden landed a force under Lieutenant Mook to destroy the wireless station at Keeling, sometimes called Cocos, Island. The little British colony received the heavily armed enemy philosophically, and just before Mook began putting the radio apparatus out of commission, the operator congratulated him upon having been awarded the Iron Cross. "'How do you know I have the Iron Cross?' asked the surprised German. "'I have just caught the message,' was the answer. It was the last one received at Keeling for some time. Scarcely was the work of destroying the station completed when Mook heard the Emden's siren signaling him to return at once. Rushing his men into the launch, he started for his ship, only to see the Emden's anchor wound frantically in and the cruiser steam away at top speed. At first he thought that it was going to meet a collier, but just before the cruiser disappeared, its Gefechtschlag, the battle pennant, was broken out, and columns of water flung high in the air told that guns of equal or greater power than the Emden's own were feeling for their range. The raider was nearing the end of its far-trailed tether. Crushing down his chagrin at being thus helplessly marooned while his ship and captain were fighting for their lives, Mook returned to the shore, hoisted the German flag, mounted his four machine guns, and declared the island under martial law. Not until a trench had been dug and preparations made to resist a landing from the enemy warship did he find time to climb to a housetop and endeavor to find the distant sea duel. His account of the fight between the Emden and Sydney is incomplete, disjointed, inaccurate, and not especially fair, and I am not setting it down here. The raider put up a game fight against a swifter and more heavily armed adversary. It was foredoomed from the moment the speedy Australian cruiser picked up its smoke trail, and its finish was not the least glorious moment of an unparalleled career. 
End of section 62. This recording is in the public domain.